Growing up, I believe that we're oftentimes shaped deeply by the different things we watch, the environment that we grow up in. And uh, hi, son. That's my kid that's crying. It's cool. Um, I grew up oftentimes, though, watching. How many of you guys grew up watching the show Mythbusters? Any Mythbusters fans? Or what about Punked? I grew up watching Punked. I know some of you are like, you're a sinner. And I'm like, you are too. It's cool. We're among friends. But those shows, as funny as it sounds, I believe led to me being kind of a skeptical person. Here's why. If you've never seen those shows, in Mythbusters, what would happen is they would take myths. They would take urban legends. They'd take certain things, and there would be these science guys who would do experiments, and they'd try to prove or disprove whether or not it could happen. They'd take these unbelievable claims and see if it could happen. You know, things like uh, if you punch a shark in the face, you know, could it save you? Um, just all those sort of things. Could you take salsa and somehow use the acidity to break out of a prison? Things like that. And then on the other end, you have Punked, which, um, you know, was starring Ashton Kutcher. A lot of people say I resemble him with a beard, um, except I might be a little taller and mildly more handsome, And um, depending on who you ask. And what would happen in this show, though, is they would play pranks primarily on celebrities, right? They would put celebrities into these unbelievable scenarios and just kind of watch them squirm and see what happens. Now, because of these, I grew up in this this time where, for me, oftentimes when something unbelievable would happen, I'd be like, all right, can we prove it? Let's Mythbusters this right away. Or I'd start looking around and be like, where's Ashton Kutcher? Something's going on. Someone's trying to punk me. And on a day like Easter Sunday, on the day that we, we celebrate the resurrected Savior, many of us are skeptical. Many of us come this morning with questions. They come with questions about Could that really actually happen? That seems too unbelievable. Or was this just a trick? Is someone trying to punk me? This morning, I would humbly like to try to respond as best I can uh, as a person who uh, graduated with um, C's in college. But, you know, like they say, D's get degrees. I'm kidding, but really you do. That is me. But I'd like to respond after doing some research on some commonly held, um, hey, what about this sort of thing? And I want us to maybe walk through some evidence and decide for ourselves maybe is what we thought about the resurrection maybe not as unbelievable as we thought. Maybe it's more believable than we thought. But at the end, I want to to, to unveil for you maybe something that as I've studied, I found the most unbelievable in the best way possible. I want to open with scripture this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open up to the Gospel of Luke Chapter 24, starting in verses 1 through 8. And if you don't, it'll be up on the screen. And this is what it says. It says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while you were still in Galilee. The son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. As we begin and approach this, let me just throw this out here to us. Why, why does it even matter? Who cares? What's crazy is there's studies out there today that there are many people who proclaim to be Christ followers, and yet they actually don't believe in the resurrection. 
which is astounding to me. And the reason why it's important, the reason why I believe and why I believe it's important to get to the bottom of this is that the resurrection proves Jesus is who he says he is. His resurrection means that there is a profound implication upon our presence and our future, whether or not the resurrection is real or not. So let's dive into this. I'm going to do this as best as I can. All right, so here's a question that many people may begin with. They may say, how do we know Jesus is real? What if he was just a legend? What if he was made up like Robin Hood uh, or the Easter Bunny or something like that? How do we know he's just not some sort of fairy tale that people told to make people feel better? Now, most scholars, overarchingly, buy into the idea that Jesus was a historical figure. The reason why is because there is written evidence. Now, again, depending on who you talk to, some may not buy into the validity of all the evidence, but let me walk you through some of the evidence. So, first of all, you have the fact that in our scripture, we obviously have multiple eyewitnesses. Now, right away, I'm sure some of you are thinking, that's great, but they're biased. They all come from a place where, of course, they're going to say that. They believe that. They started this movement. Some of you are jumping the gun already and be like, it's because they made it all up. It's a conspiracy theory. Aliens. Um, we'll get there in a minute. Not to the aliens part, but some of this conspiracy theory part. But the reason why most historians, both those who believe Jesus is Lord and Savior and those who don't, buy into the fact that he is, is because we honestly tend, when we come to the question of Jesus' validity in history, we tend to not treat Jesus in the same manner that we treat other ancient historical figures. You see, what's interesting is we actually have extra non-biblical records that point to the idea that Jesus was a physical man. Whether you want to believe he was the son of man, whether you want to believe he did any of these things, they point to this idea that he was a man, he started a revolution, uh, he ended up being killed on a cross, and for the vast majority, most would agree that there's evidence to say there was an empty tomb. Whatever you want to do with that, hold on to that for a moment. But most scholars would say that. Now, why, do, why would many say that he's treated unfairly in different ways? It's because we have so much more. What's crazy about Scripture is it is probably the most authenticated, the most, uh, most copies of any ancient document. So papyrus is, what, is the type of paper that was written on in that culture. Not talking about the really, really ugly font, but this thin paper. And so it did not have a great shelf life. And so what is crazy is we don't have a ton of ancient documents uh, like it's not like all of these stories about some of the historical figures from the past that aren't necessarily mentioned in the Bible. We don't have tons and tons of copies of them. Oftentimes, we only have three or four copies for uh, certain other historical figures. Yet we don't question the validity or the existence of them. Yet with Jesus, when we have um, multiple eyewitnesses that we find in Scripture, we have multiple eyewitnesses, and again, we'll get to this, uh, multiple historians who write the validity of it, who come from a Jewish perspective or even from a Roman perspective, which neither of them would really want to mention him because he kind of ruins everything for them in a really great way, maybe not in their opinion. Why is it the fact, then, that it's easy to believe that those who we have less sources with, obviously, even though they, they also would have been written about from biased perspectives, why is it that we can't take that? So again, in my humble opinion, some may disagree. I believe that there's, there's enough evidence to proclaim that Jesus was a real man. They started a revolution. They eventually was crucified. And that there was an empty tomb. Now, 
The next question you may begin to ask is, how do we know that it wasn't just some sort of trick or a hoax? How do we know that Jesus wasn't the original Ashton Kutcher punked doing all of this? Let's talk through this from a medical perspective for just one moment. So if we buy into the idea that he was a real man and that he was crucified on a cross, let's just think about this for a second. So the Romans, i got to give them a hand. Man, they are killing it on the whole, killing people in a terrible, awful way. I mean, they perfected it. And so when a person would have been crucified on a cross, imagine this. This sounds really fun, right? Uh, you get nailed into one hand, then the other, and then your legs would be crossed and you'd be nailed through there. So... Um, already, that just sounds wonderful, right? It just sounds like, oh, yay. Um, that obviously produced a lot of blood loss. And so eventually what would end up happening is the blood would begin to pool into the lungs. And oftentimes on the cross, there'd be a block placed. And, you know, the Romans wanted you to suffer as long as possible. So they added this block so that way you could lift yourself up because that way you could sort of get the chance to get a larger breath. So that way you can just continue in the pain and the madness. Now, in the Gospel of John... It talks about how there are two other men uh, who were crucified with Jesus that day. And they talk about how uh, the Romans being so nice, probably because they had to get uh, to grandma's for dinner, uh, what they would do sometimes if it wasn't going fast enough and they didn't have time, they'd break their legs, which is so nice of them. And uh, they'd break their legs so that way they could no longer lift up and it would expedite the process of death. Now, what we find in the Gospel of John is that Jesus is already dead by the time that they come and they break the other guy's legs. Now, some of you are like, aha, this is the moment. See, he never broke his legs, so this is where it's easy, so he could just recover from his wounds really quickly. Gotcha. What ends up happening, though, as we find out in Scripture, is that he's pierced in his side by a spear by a Roman guard. Now, a couple things to think about. One, if you're pierced in your side, uh, once you get past the abs, um, I wouldn't have those. Jesus probably would have. Uh, oftentimes, they probably would have been aiming for the heart. So, again, Imagine whatever your profession is, these Roman guards, their, their profession in a lot of ways is like, we're really, really good at killing people, really good at making them suffer. And so if they're trying to expedite this process, they're wanting to make sure that he really did die, because guess what? If there was a big hoax, if he didn't really die, they're going to look really bad. In fact, they could be put to death if they were involved in a conspiracy. You're saying that Jesus, who, real quick, gets nail, 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 pierced in the side, possibly likely in the heart, you're going to say that what ended up happening then is that, all right, they took him down really quickly. Maybe they gave him something so he'd go into shock. They took him, put him in a tomb, closed up the tomb. Inside the tomb, they had the greatest Middle Eastern uh, ancient culture doctors at that time who were able to bandage him up as quickly as possible, and he was able to go out, and that is how they pulled off the hoax. Now, I'm not that smart, and most of you guys know that, but I'm going to guess that even in today's modern medicine advancements, the idea that someone could go through what Jesus did and then go into a tomb and somehow with lesser medicine, lesser technology, was able to quickly be healed back up. I don't know about you, but it begins to say, I don't think this adds up. Also, imagine this. We find out in Scripture that it says that the tomb which he was placed into was sealed by a big old stone, one that would have been about two tons, which, I mean, most of us can lift that in the morning if we're, you know, have stretched. But, you know, two tons is, I don't know, just 4,000 pounds, very casual, about seven to eight feet high. So we're going to say that even though it was sealed by the Roman guard, which, again, they're basically proclaiming that, all right, it is our life's duty to guard this place. If, if, it, if the body's stolen, if something happens, we're on the hook, you can kill us. 
you're going to say that they were either a part of the conspiracy or let's just say maybe they fell asleep and that casually during the middle of the night, you know, the disciples who obviously were bodybuilders came and they pushed the roll, the stone away without them ever figuring out. They stole the body and that's how they did it. Again, when we start to think through some of this logically, if we want to take some of this evidence seriously, it begins to not add up that it could have just been a hoax. It couldn't have been a trick. Now, some of you would say, all right, here's the thing, man. The Bible was written down later. So obviously we know what happened is that we know that the disciples or Paul, they probably made it up, right? Let's respond to that. We opened this morning reading the gospel of Luke. And in every single one of the gospel accounts, in every account later on uh, in the story of the early followers, every single one of them proclaims this truth, which is phenomenally interesting, that who was the first one to proclaim the risen Savior? The women. Who runs this world? You know. The women. The women were the ones who went and did it. That's another reason why when people are like, yeah, there's no such thing. Women can't be pastors. They can't speak. Like, hello, they're the very first ones to talk about the resurrection. Get a clue. Anyways, I digress. Um, but here's what's crazy. If you are going to make up some sort of lie in which you could start this revolution, this, this religion, the thing is, you would be a fool to say, I know what we're going to do. We're going to say that women were the first one who did it. And that's going to, you know, validate the original story. Because in ancient culture, women did not have the same sort of status in culture. The way they could own property wasn't the same. Oftentimes, their testimonies in a court of law was not viewed as the same. They would, they, they would treat them like they were a small child. It wasn't the same as a man. I'm not saying that's right or that's wrong. But I'm just saying that's the way it was. So if you're going to start a revolution and you want people to think it's real and authenticate it, there is no way that you would begin that story, you would make up that story by saying that it was the women who went there first. Plus, let's think about this. Okay, if I'm the disciples, I'm making up this story. I don't know about you, I'm, I'm a little vain, and so I would probably make myself look really good. Like, let's be honest, any of us who have social media accounts, every picture we post, like, we post where we look good, like to the point where when people see us in real life, they're like, man, you look way different in person. Uh, a lot of those filters. But if I was going to write the story, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to write myself looking brave, faithful, and smart. Yet the disciples all scattered when all the stuff started happening. When Jesus gets arrested, they are all a bunch of wusses and scattered. I mean, I guess Peter did cut a guy's ear off, which is kind of cool. But still, they all eventually deny him. They're not there for him. And get this. Every single one of them who uh, wrote a gospel or who gave an eyewitness account to someone who wrote a gospel, all of them proclaimed in the gospels that Jesus had taught them that, hey, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to be killed, but three days later, I'm coming back. So think about this. In their story, if they're going to just make this up, who in the world would write themselves into the story as saying, yep, totally didn't think it was going to happen, even though he told us it was going to happen multiple times? Every single one of them on Friday when he died and on Saturday when he was in the tomb believed he was dead, didn't think he was coming back. They felt hopeless. So if that's true, and if we go on the logic that no person would be writing themselves as unfaithful, as a coward, then what does it mean? To me, what I believe it means is that the disciples didn't just believe something or make something up. They saw something. 
There was something that they saw that they couldn't explain otherwise. There was, there was the reality that we, we read about like Thomas who, who is, is doubting Thomas. I feel bad. What a terrible nickname for him. Uh, it's sort of like when I got diarrhea during a standardized test once and I got a nickname I can't tell you about right now. But people never forget and you're written in history forever. But Thomas, he's the only one who, who had enough gumption to be, pretty much own up to the fact that's like, Jesus, is that really you or is that a ghost? Talks about how he got to touch the wounds. We have multiple points in scripture where it talks about how the people, he appeared to different people during that time. Some of them got to touch them. Some of them ate with him. Again, in my opinion, the disciples didn't just make something up. They saw something because the rest of their life doesn't make sense. I mean, think about this again. Also, if I was starting some sort of revolution, I'm making up some huge lie. Here's a couple things I think about that I probably wouldn't, I'd probably make sure happen. One, I'd make sure I'm rich. I'd make sure I'm powerful, uh, and I'd make sure that uh, everyone liked me. Just going to be honest. That's what I would probably do. I think that's what most of us would do. Yet the disciples, all of them ended up suffering. Many of them were beaten. Some of them were killed for their faith. Many of them left their homes, everything that was familiar to them, probably left uh, family ties, probably were disowned by certain people, all for the sake of this good news that Jesus had came back from the dead. Now, in my opinion, logically, it doesn't make sense that you have these, these 12 people, because Judas dies uh, after he betrays, and they vote in another guy. But even then, there's even more than just those 12, too. I have a hard time believing or buying into that all of these men and women would keep this great, elaborate scheme of uh, conspiracy theory type thing, and that Many of them would suffer or die. None of them would become rich or powerful. It just doesn't make sense. And again, some would say, well, what if they were just like hallucinating? Let's get to that in just a moment. How about Paul? Paul writes, most scholars believe Paul wrote the vast majority of the letters that we have in the Old or in the New Testament. Paul has an interesting story. Paul comes from uh, this, this group of religious Jews who would have been uh, very extreme in their views. They were a group who uh, early on uh, followers of Jesus were persecuted and killed by them. Paul would have been a guy who would have been incredibly intelligent, well-versed, and smart. He would have had a life of a lot of power, privilege, and prestige. And so Paul has this cool story you can read about in the book of Acts where he is blinded while he's walking on a road and his life is forever changed. He experiences, he encounters the risen Savior and it changes everything. Now, most scholars believe it was probably somewhere between one to three years after the resurrection that Paul has his conversion. And it's very shortly after there, less than five years after the resurrection, that Paul goes and he spends time with some of the disciples, the eyewitnesses, the ones who were there the entire time to hear from them. And then, so again, some of us are asking questions about, well, Aaron, this is cool, but what about, like, I thought you said, you know, Scripture was written, written later, so wouldn't it just be easy to fabricate everything? Okay, so here's kind of the crazy thing. Uh, most scholars believe Jesus died somewhere between 30 and 33 A.D. The New Testament, the vast majority of the New Testament, uh, is dated back to being written between 50 and 100 A.D., so that means some of the first ones were only talking uh, 20 years or, or less uh, from the time that this all happened. Now, let's be honest. Some of you are like, well, that's a long time ago. We forget stuff. Well, let me ask you a question. 9-11, September 11th, where were you? 
Can you remember those that day? I was in Miss Black's English class. A kid next to me definitely did not wear deodorant that day. The smell is still there. You can probably remember the first images you saw on a television, the conversations you had. I have a hard time believing that if something truly intense happened that was just shocking and changing, as if we don't remember those moments. But again, Paul is talking to people less than five years afterwards. Here's kind of the crazy, really interesting and neat thing. Most scholars believe it was only 15 to 20 years post this that Paul, that Paul writes his letter, his first letter to the Corinthians. And this is what he says. I want to read this with you guys this morning. This comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. And this is what he says, and we'll unpack this a little bit. For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. This is, this is what he received from, the, from, from Christ when he experienced him and what he received from, from the original disciples. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is actually just Peter. That's a word that means rock, and Jesus gave him the name Rock Peter. Anyways, and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time. Two things that are significant there are there. 500, that's a lot of people. Two, the fact, again, he's mentioning ladies in there because they normally wouldn't be seen as credible witnesses, but all at the same time. And then he says this, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, And last of all, he appeared also to me. Paul is name dropping like it's his job in this text. Now, I don't know if you guys are a terrible sinner like me, but I I got pretty good at lying over the years. I'm just going to be honest. You know, when mom asked me about what happened to the Oreos, I was pretty good at making up excuses that my brothers always ate them. Uh, Many of us would agree that we are smart enough to know when you're trying to tell a lie, Things that you don't typically do, you don't give lots of people as witnesses. You don't ask tons of people. Typically, you know, in courts of law, people who are guilty, who somehow can find someone to corroborate their uh, story, their alibi, it's not like they give over 500 people. It's not like they name drop all of these people. So Paul, what I think is so cool, he name drops Peter. He name drops the original apostles. He name drops James. And uh, when he refers to the other apostles, many believe that it would have been some of the other early church fathers afterwards. And then he also obviously makes this proclamation that there were 500 people at one time who saw him. Again, some of these people touched him, ate with him. They interacted with him. They saw something. Now, if you were trying to start a big lie, and we're talking less than 20 years after this happened, which, again, a vast majority of those people still would have been alive. A vast majority of those people would not forget an encounter like that. If he has the stones to say, this is what I heard, this is real, if you don't believe me, go ask all of these people, this one, this one, and this one. If he's telling a lie, why in the world would he even say those names? Why in the world would he go there? Because here's the thing. Paul the man who was a tent maker by trade, who was essentially homeless the vast majority of the rest of his life. The man who suffered many multiple shipwrecks, who traveled constantly, who was beaten, imprisoned, and eventually killed for the faith. You're going to tell me that this guy, one, is making it up after living a life like that, but two, maybe he has enough money to pay off enough people to tell a lie? To me, as I begin to examine the evidence, I get to a place where for me personally, I think it's almost 
easier to believe that the unbelievable event of the resurrection happened than that it didn't. Because here's what's interesting. With many things, we come at it from this angle of, you must give me the exact evidence to prove that it did not, that, that it did happen. And yet on the opposite line of thinking, I would press on to people and say, give me the evidence that proves that it didn't happen or couldn't happen. And the truth is, when we start to examine the evidence, we can't. And the truth is, even with all of this evidence, there's this element of this thing called faith, where at the end of the day, we still have to choose what we're going to believe, what evidence we're going to buy into. But for all of these people, what's really amazing is that they were not so concerned with these things. Yes, there was the evidence there, but the truth is for them, it wasn't just that someone could tell enough cool uh, factoids. It wasn't just that Jesus came back with some sort of PowerPoint presentation or had like the red strings that connected all the dots. But for them, they saw something. They experienced something. Here's one last thing I'll tell you on why I buy into Jesus. So the Old Testament that we have is, is again, it's one of the most accurate, it's one of the ancient documents that we have the most for. Now, I want you to imagine this. Picture the state of Texas. It's one of the biggest states that we have. It is ginormous. It's bigger than some countries. Now, imagine if you were to take silver dollars, which is a coin that I don't know if anyone ever actually used. I don't know why they made them, but they're bigger than quarters and things like that. Now, what if you were to cover the entire state of Texas with silver dollars, and then make sure that it comes up two feet high. So we're talking about, I don't know, a trillion, a hundred and trillion some uh, silver dollars. And you were to mark an X on one of those and just toss it into the state of Texas, okay? And then let's play a fun little birthday game uh, for kids, and let's blindfold someone and let them walk around Texas as long as they want and eventually pick up one. Now, I don't know about you, I'm not good at math, but I'm going to assume that the odds of a person plucking out that marked silver dollar is pretty slim, right? Could, could we go with that? But, uh, you know, it's almost nearly impossible. The odds of there being eight prophecies, eight things predicted from Scripture that happened thousands of years before Jesus came, that eight prophecies about Jesus as the Messiah would come true. That's the same odds that someone would have if they were blindfolded, walking through the state of Texas, looking through all of these silver dollars, trying to find the one. That's incredibly tiny odds. Yet in the Old Testament, we find that Jesus fulfilled 300 prophecies. The odds of that are mind-blowing. And even if you don't want to take that for its word, what's mind-blowing to me is if someone can begin to logically think through, well, these disciples who were not professionally trained uh, rabbis, they came from other professions, that they sat down one day and figured out a way to write this story that 300 different prophecies written long ago would come true through this man. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the resurrection because to me, the evidence starts to add up. But can I be honest with you, my friends? We sit oftentimes as a jury. We sit as people saying, Oh God, if you are really true, you must prove to me that you are true. And the reality is that Jesus isn't looking for a jury to believe the evidence of him. He is looking for followers to become family. That is the most amazing, unbelievable part of this whole resurrection story. Because I come to a place where personally, if the evidence doesn't, if there's no scientific, logical way that I can, can account for the resurrection of Jesus, do you know what I've come to? 
that something beyond myself, something beyond my own abilities, my own rational thinking, something beyond just this world made this happen. And so Jesus, the man who predicted his own death, his own resurrection, who fulfilled all of those prophecies. I don't know about y'all, but if a man can predict over 300 uh, prophecy or can fulfill over 300 prophecies that were written about him thousands of years before he was born, follow through on it, and actually come back from the dead, I don't know about y'all, but I'm going with that guy. I'm going with the guy who does all of those. But I'm also going with him because like the disciples, man, I have had an encounter with Jesus that I can't explain. I've experienced something with him that, 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 that I don't care what sort of science, I don't care what sort of research you put out there. I am completely un, un, unshakably changed by the goodness and the love of God. And the reason why is because maybe some of you have heard the gospel presented as a way of we are all dirty, rotten sinners who were filthy rags, nothing good can come of us, and God, just because he's nice, came, had his son die for us so we could be redeemed, and then he could just peace out, and the mess was cleaned up. What a terrible view of God. Because when I read Scripture, what I believe, what I see, is a God who deeply and desperately loves us, who looks at us and says, in the very beginning, I created the heavens and the earth. And at the end of creation, each day I said, it is good. But when I came to the last day, I created man in my image. Everything else was created in this way and that way. It's cool. But man, human humanity, I created in my image. There's something special, something unique, something just divinely appointed in the makeup of who you are that makes you special and have greater worth than anything else in this world. And that I deeply and desperately desire to be in relationship with you. That the story of the Old Testament is a God who is constantly trying to redeem and restore a broken relationship, trying to get us back to the factory setting of what we are created to be, which is sons and daughters created in the image of God, whom he deeply wants to be in a relationship with, where there is no barrier, there's no brokenness, and things are good. And that is the story. That's the unbelievable thing to me. In the Gospel of John, it tells us this. It says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. Do you realize that even though voices in our head, even though people in our life, have placed upon us shame. They've placed upon us identities that say we are not worthy. Placed upon ourselves all of these sort of thoughts. And I believe when Jesus came and when he died and when he rose again, the resurrection is so important because Jesus then is authenticated into being who he says he is. And if Jesus is authenticated in who he says he is, then who he says we are matters. And Jesus taught us that we approach the God of all the universe, the God who placed the stars in the sky, who parted the Red Seas, who made dry bones come alive, the God who sent his son into this world to not condemn us, but to save us. That if he says, you will approach the God of all the universe as father, as children, with confidence, man, that's really, really good news. In Romans 8, 
I love this scripture and I love this, this version from the message, which is sort of a paraphrased translation. It just says this. It says, the resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Papa? God's spirit touches our spirit and confirms who we really are. We know who he is and we know who we are. Father and children, we know that we are going to get what's coming to us. And let me pause before I say what's coming to us. Most of us view God in a way of what's coming for us is wrath. It's anger. It's punishment. And yet what do we receive there? What's coming for us is an unbelievable inheritance. An unbelievable inheritance. My friends, Jesus doesn't want you just to believe in him. He wants you to belong to him. God doesn't need you. He wants you. And because of the power of the resurrection, everything changes. You see, God's greatest desire for you is for you to live out who he created to be. And who he created you to be is a son, a daughter. And sons and daughters, they're not cast out. They're welcomed in. Sons and daughters aren't told they are terrible, aren't told when a mess happens that they need to just get out because they are no longer worthy. Sons and daughters have a good father who steeps down to their level and says, let me help you. I love you. Let's try this again. Sons and daughters are invited to be inside the house, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever and to inherit good things. For us, it's inheriting the kingdom of God here and now. It changes our life here and now. But we also believe that our inheritance is an eternity with Him, where there's no more sin, no more shame, no more brokenness, but we are just in perfect communion with Him. This morning, I don't know all of your stories and I don't know what sort of baggage you have. Some of you may still be even skeptical and that's cool, that's fine. But I just hope that you know, that you hear these words this morning, that the God of all the universe, man, does he love you. Man, does he look at you and say, you, my daughter, my son, you look like me and I love it. You got my eyes. You have my nose. You got my bubble butt. There's something about you that I just find so stand up one more time and we're going to sing one more song. And while we sing this song, would we just proclaim the truth that it's because of the blood of Jesus that we have new life. That we, though we have ran away from home, are invited back in with open arms. 
would we begin to lean into our identity as sons and daughters of the one true God, deeply and desperately loved. Let's pray. God, I love you, and I thank you just for the fact that, God, you don't view us as enemies. God, you view us as your everything. God, that you so desperately wanted to be with us, that, God, despite our constant unfaithfulness, God, despite the fact that you would give us good things and we would break it, God, despite the fact that you would make a way and we would close the door, God, you never stopped pursuing us. God, that you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross for us. That through his blood being shed, God, we could experience forgiveness of sin, of our brokenness. But God, not only that, that you would make a way for a new life for us. God, that you would inaugurate a new kingdom. So God, we no longer had to just say, yeah, we're forgiven, but we're still living in a kingdom of darkness. God, you have invited us to sit at your table. You have invited us to dwell in your house forever. And so God, this morning, I pray for anyone who is still having doubts, who are still experiencing uh, just pieces of shame, voices from the enemy. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray that the Holy Spirit would just dwell in this place and that all that anyone would hear this morning is that I love you, my child. Please come home. God, as we proclaim the goodness of your son, Jesus, would you speak your servants are listening. God, I thank you for your son, Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen.